hear this from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he's praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he had said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from a cloud came a voice <clears throat> that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to Boston Avenue and to participate in the Barton Clinton Gordy lectures. I'm excited about our conversations over the next few evenings. So I get to talk this morning, but I look forward to some give and take this evening. I also bring greetings from Wesley Theological Seminary. That's one of your United Methodist seminaries. So I hope if you're ever in Washington, D.C., you come by and visit. We love to have folks come. God's life and our life. Let's begin with the scripture of Luke 9, the transfiguration, this is often called. We have this account in all the Gospels, and there's lots here. It is chock full of insights into God's life and into our life. But I'm going to focus on just a piece of it this morning. That is when the scripture tells us that Peter did not know what he was saying. But let's set up the story. Jesus and his disciples just had a conversation earlier in, in chapter 9 about who Jesus really is, what he's really doing here, about the cost of being a follower of Jesus, and then Jesus goes up to the mountaintop and takes Peter, James, and John with him. And if we were a good first century Jew, hearing this gospel of Luke, our ears would go ding, 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 going up to the mountaintop. I know what that means. That means we're going to encounter God. Because everywhere in the Hebrew scripture, whenever there's an encounter with God, often that happens on a mountaintop. 
and certainly within the Semitic cultures around them, the high places were the places of worship. So this is a big deal for Peter and James and John to be invited to go up with Jesus to the mountaintop. They go up, Jesus begins to pray, and sure enough, wow, two Jewish heroes show up, Moses and Elijah. Already, these are, these are celebrities. This is a big deal for Peter and James and John. Moses, the chosen of God, who was the great deliverer of the Israelites out of the slavery in Egypt uh, into the promised land, the one who gets the Ten Commandments, in fact, the whole Torah uh, from the Lord, and Elijah, who's also a chosen one of God, a prophet. And in Jewish tradition, Elijah is the prophet that will signal the coming of the Messiah. So uh, the, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come first to announce the Messiah. And so here Elijah is talking to Jesus. And Moses is there too. You couldn't have a better endorsement from the Hebrew tradition. So Peter, James, and John, in fact, are having amazing experience on this mountaintop. And it's so powerful that Peter says, Lord, Let's build a dwelling, or sometimes translated tent or tabernacle. Let's build a place. And again, if we were hearing this with first century Jewish ears, we'd go ding, 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 build a tent, build a tabernacle. That's what you do when God shows up. You create a holy space. You mark it. So this is an understandable impulse that Peter has. And in a sense, he wants to freeze frame this powerful experience. I always think, you know, if he'd had his iPhone, he'd be taking a picture, you know, of Moses and Elijah and, Elijah and Jesus all together. Um, he, he wants to hang on to this powerful experience. Why? Because it, it assures him that Jesus is for real. He's been following Jesus now in his ministry, and believe you me, it's by no means evident to everybody that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus is right. And he's been challenging a lot of the religious culture of his day. So when Peter sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus all talking, he wants to build a tent. He wants to hold it, hold this powerful reassurance in place. So what, what begins is a very natural desire, really, to hang on to a powerful experience of God uh, becomes an attempt in some ways to put a box around that experience, to make it static, to hold it there. He did not know what he was saying. This is a very human, human desire, right? When we have a powerful experience of God or of faith or of church, we want to create a box and put it in the box and keep it safe and preserve it there. We want to often capture and hold in or even routinize the presence of God. We do this often, uh, probably most often, in our own personal uh, experiences, which then we can uh, remember and hold on to and often set up as normative, right, as the only way to be religious or the only way to be Christian or the only way God can work. Sometimes that is a, a particular kind of conversion experience that that Christians can put a box around and say that's where God is in that particular box 
or for some of us it might be a particular Sunday school class experience or a mission trip or a walk to Emmaus um, or an intellectual framework that finally makes sense of faith for us and then we put a box around it and we want to hold it there. For many Protestants, I would say um, the Bible itself can be a box, right? Um, I've got a Bible here. It can be a box where God lives. We can put God in this box and set it aside. Um, Protestants are particularly prone to this. Uh, And when we want to know something about God, we'll go peek inside and then we can close it and leave God. So it's not only a way to kind of contain God, but to separate God from real life, right? Because God's over there in that. Um, it, it is a, uh, one of the ways, in addition to religious experience, that we can limit and box God in. Let's build a box. Let's build a tent. What is God's response in Scripture to Peter? Well, first it says he didn't know what he was saying, um, uh, which indicates it's an understandable desire Peter has, but it's misguided. And the next thing God does is very dramatic. A cloud rolls in and surrounds them and overwhelms them. Now, again, a cloud, if we have on our first century Jewish ears, ding, 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 a cloud is God's calling card. A cloud is the way God led the children of Israel through the wilderness, right? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And so a central way God shows up is in a cloud. Could not be more different than a tent or a box, right? Think of these two very different images. A cloud couldn't even fit in a box. A cloud that is unbounded, uh, that is diffuse, a box that is limited and contained. And a, a cloud is also rather intimate, right? If you're in the middle of a cloud, you can't escape it. It's right up in your face. So to have God in a cloud is a dramatic alternative to building a tent. God couldn't be more clear. I'm bigger than the box you want to create. And throughout the last 2,000 years as a Christian family, we've been learning this over and over and over. I'll put on my church historian's hat for a moment and give you a few examples because this is a human tendency to have a powerful, holy experience, to then put it in a box and preserve it, and God coming along and breaking the box open again and doing a new thing. In the first three centuries of Christianity, we squabbled a lot about who Jesus really is and whether or not Jesus is God and what does it mean to say Jesus is God. And there's lots of Christians who say we can't say Jesus is God because that would mean we're putting God in a box in this human person, Jesus, and that's too limited. Uh, How could the God of all the solar systems that created the entire universe be inside a little baby in a manger, right? So we, we struggled with that. That's another lecture for another day. But it indicates a, a deep in our bones, within our Christian life, this constant struggle with trying to contain God 
God breaking open again. We see it in the 300s, a Christian theologian, Macrina, who lived in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and she wanted to think about this claim we make. We said it this morning in the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And she was a good student of science and of the laws of physics. And she wanted us to not put God in a box over here that was separate from what we know about the physical laws of the natural world. And so she's trying to make sense out of the claims of resurrection with what we know about the molecular biology of human bodies and how do these go together and wanting us to not think God is only over here and God is not over there. Let's, let's break that open. In the 700s, in the rise of Islam, we Christians heard a lot from their Muslim neighbors about the way Muslims were critiquing Christianity critiquing our notions of God, particularly as three and one, right? For, for Islam, that just didn't make sense. You either have one God, you can't have three gods. And so Christians come along in that period and sort of begin to struggle again with what does it mean to say God is three and one and, um, and break open the box of, of vocabulary and say, you know, maybe all of our definitions about God and maybe all of our creeds about God um, aren't uh, boxes. They don't have to limit us. Let's open that up. And in the 1200s, Thomas Aquinas and others come along in, uh, within scholastic communities and universities and want to see the relationship between scriptural truth, the truth of the God's word, and rational truth. And Aquinas says, we can't keep God in one box over here and think God... God's, God's here, but not in human reason. Um, we've got to break open those boxes. And in the 1600s, a woman, a nun in New Spain, in Mexico City, Juana Inés de la Cruz, challenged the Catholic hierarchy, challenged the notion that only men could interpret Scripture. And she argued that women could interpret scripture too, breaking open a box the church had created about how scripture could be read and understood. And John Wesley, in the 1700s, started the Methodist movement as a protest that the church can't keep God boxed inside the sanctuary or even boxed inside our rituals, or even boxed inside our structures. And John Wesley took a lot of heat. He was a priest of the Church of England. He took a lot of heat for wanting to open up the boxes of the church to see how God is at work outside the church, particularly among the urban poor. So yes, we, like Peter, have powerful religious experiences, and we, like Peter, want to create boxes to put them in. And within our Christian family, within the larger body of Christ, someone always comes along, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to open up our boxes. And this is good news, that God's life and work in us is insistent and will not let us stagnate for long. 
Now, Peter didn't know what he was saying. That's such an interesting phrase. Because by putting God in a box, he was putting his own life in a box, too. When we limit our, our religious experiences and our faith to only one experience, our own lives become small and diminished, cramped, or stuck. Then we can't always see how God might be at work outside of our own expectations. It is God's life in whom we live and move and have our being, and that's an expansive life. Therefore, our life is as roomy as God's. Every part of your life is filled with God's working, not just when you're reading scripture or praying or at church, but when you're clicking through that Netflix queue and when you're sitting in traffic and when you're making dinner. Our life in God's life is always growing and opening up. So what are some strategies, some, some strategies when we, when we find we're creating boxes? First, pay attention. Know that you've created a box. You know, I've got this box. Um, then second, be curious about it because it's there for a reason. It's important. You've had some powerful knowing or experience that God has given you. Um, so be curious and investigate it. But don't stay there. The third step is to be curious about others' boxes. Because in the body of Christ, we all bring stories and experiences that are the best corrective we could have when we want to stay on that mountaintop and build a box. And then fourth, give thanks for that experience or that box and let it go. Maybe that will be your Lenten discipline this year. When someone says, what are you giving up for Lent? You can say, the box that I keep God in. And lastly, Scripture says, follow Jesus. God tells them, this is my chosen. Listen to him. Don't take a snapshot or build a box or stay on top of the mountain, but follow Jesus. Only then can we love this world in Jesus' name. So our good news for today, God's life is bigger than our boxes. Our life is more than we can imagine in God. And Jesus offers an expansive, abundant life, a wide-open, spacious life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.